Good morning and welcome to this WERU Main Current Special. I'm Amy Brown. You are in for a real treat this morning. Actor, humorist, and author John Hodgman's latest book, Vacation Land, True Stories from Painful Beaches, recounts in hilarious detail some of his experiences and impressions summering right here in this part of Maine. It recently came out in paperback and he spoke to an enthusiastic crowd at the Blue Hill Library on May 29th. I'm Hannah. I'm the assistant director here at the library, and I just wanted to welcome everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on a beautiful summer evening. I am thrilled to introduce our speaker for tonight. Uh, You may know him from TV, from commercials for a certain brand of computer, uh, from his podcast, which I may say he's a very fair adjudicator of. and uh, also as an author. So he's here to talk about his book, Vacation Land, which just came out in paperback. Obviously, a lot of connection to this area. So please join me in welcoming John Hodgman. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you. All of you nice people for uh, being here on the day that this book, uh, Vacation Land, which is uh, for sale. Uh, I know we're in a library. Normally, you're used to just taking things for free around here and stealing from authors. That ends tonight. Uh, Blue Hill Books sells books. And, uh, it's for sale. But it's, it comes out in paperback today. And I was going to be up here for this weekend. And um, Anna and I have been talking about doing an event uh, here and, I, and for reasons that I'll explain, I really hoped that this day would never come. I really did not want to do it. Um, I mean, I love this library uh, very much, and, and Anna and everyone here is wonderful, and I, I spend, obviously love this part of the world very deeply, but um, you know, uh, uh, when you write about a place uh, and then come back to that place, and that place is uh, small town Maine, <laughs> You worry that there will be a reckoning of some kind. <laughs> you worry there might be some neighborly scorn heaped upon you. Um, I, I think, you know, my, my wife and kids and I, uh, having visited this part of the world for many years, bought a home here uh, in Brooklyn, Maine. Um, we also live in Brooklyn, New York, because we like things to be hilarious, uh, or at least confusing. But... Uh, we bought a home here in 2014, and just uh, uh, many of the stories that are contained in this book are from that period of time. If someone from away came t- to my town and lived there for two seconds and then went and wrote all about it as if they knew something about it, I would hate that person. <laughs> more than I normally hate myself, I would hate that person. Uh, and, and, you know, what's more, you know, the, the book, uh, Vacation Land, are, are true stories uh, from your painful beaches and other places. The first half is more or less uh, about uh, a different uh, wilderness uh, uh, that I spent some time in, the, uh, rural western Massachusetts, where I uh, deployed a lot of my youth. Uh, and then the second half is uh, about uh, coastal Maine, where uh, my wife has told me uh, I will die. Uh, and uh, and then there's the metaphoric wilderness of middle age that, that I am embarking upon now that connects the two of them um, and uh, and so that's you know that's what the the, the book is about but it puts myself in a, um, a, not only in a difficult spot with my neighbors um, 
but also in a, in a difficult spot in the tradition of main storytelling, which is a very storied subgenre of arguable comedy that uh, <laughs> nonetheless I really appreciate it. If any of you were misfortunate enough to be following me on Twitter last night, I was, I was live tweeting the entirety of Bert and I on stage. I got a vinyl copy at uh, the Big Chicken Barn last summer. It was a big fine, $5. Uh, the Bert and I stories are incredible. I listened to the whole album. This may be the sixth time I listened to the album all the way through, and I, I still don't understand any of the words <laughs> that he's saying. It's completely incomprehensible to me. But the beauty of listening to this live recording, which I think is one of the few live recordings that Marshall Dodge ever, ever you know, made of, of his performance in 1977, is that people are laughing at words that mean nothing in the English language. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's simply the music of the storytelling that gives people the, the clue that something funny has happened. It's an amazing thing to listen to. And it's, it's a daunting thing um, to, to sort of uh, follow in the footsteps. The, the, the nice thing about it is that Marshall Dodge, who, along with Robert Bryan, created those stories, is himself from away. He's not from Maine. Um, he's a big phony who also went to Yale University, so I feel a kinship there. He started telling the stories having never visited Maine before, so I feel a certain kinship in, uh, in, in posturedom with him. Um, but so far, you know, so I wouldn't have chosen to do this uh, to, to, you know, to put my, my, myself in the spotlight in a very small place that I like a lot and want, and want to respect, um, to put my, my neighbors sometimes in the spotlight, and um, you know, describing them in in the book as, as, when I first meet them as a nest of vampires who want to devour me. <laughs> Barbara and Gary are right back there. They they've forgiven me apparently, but I honestly didn't know that they did until I just saw them just now. I said, you know, the, the, the book the book came out after I left last fall, and then we came back at Christmas, and no one mentioned it. And I thought that's fine. You know, the, the, the truth of the matter is that uh, you know I, I wouldn't have done it um, if I, unless I had to. The, the fact is that writers and comedians who are just another kind of writer, they don't choose their stories. They steal them. They steal them from the world around them. Um, whatever they can get, they sell. <laughs> like that's, that's the way we do it. Uh, I had no choice but to, but to steal everything I could from this remarkable experience uh, that, I, that I had um, uh, in, in 2014, 2015, and whatever year this is. I've lost track of time. So, um, this book, Vacation Land, began uh, as a my imitation stand-up comedy show, uh, and then was expanded, barely, into um, something resembling a book. Uh, I, I've never really read from it, I've only ever performed it, and I feel like I'm going to do that now, um, since you were nice enough to come out on a, on a, a, nice, a nice evening for once, um, that isn't too freezing or full of bugs. If you want to meet me afterward when I'm um, signing books at the end, I'd be happy to sign them and show you this really disgusting bug bite that I got <laughs> two nights ago. And if any of you are doctors, <laughs> it, would be good, it would be good to talk about it. <laughs> I, do, I, I, do, I do enjoy the medical care that I get in the Blue Hill Peninsula. <laughs> 
uh, as I tell a story in the book, I was um, at, the, at the end of a winter here. I was attacked by a barn door, and <laughs> the wind blew the barn door open, and the, the latch, which was sharp and pointy, embedded itself into my forearm. And I was stuck there for a while, wondering what to do. And uh, I went to the. I, I thought it was going to be fine, but it was not fine. Because weird liquids kept coming out of this hole in my arm. And finally, I had my friend drive me to the hospital, and and they said, um, and you know, the, it was interesting, you know, because uh, it was the middle of winter, dead of night. I was the patient uh, in, in the hospital, and I walked in, and there was no one around. And I, at the admission desk, there seemed to be no one there, and this, this face kind of emerged from the darkness behind his window, saying, yes. <laughs> and I have a hole in my arm. What do I do? And, uh, and he said, oh, well, go. You know, he took some information from me. Oh, I should be here closer to the radio, right? I apologize. Have I messed? Should we start again? <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and, and he said, well, just walk that way and someone will find you. And, and I was like, walking uh, through a darkened, abandoned hospital in the middle of a winter night, not knowing what these liquids are coming out of your arm that aren't blood, that aren't good either. Like, it's truly like, oh, now I understand what, what Stephen King is talking about. It's <laughs> scary. And then finally someone came to collect me and maybe she's here, which is a... Um, uh, a physician's assistant, I think, and she she took me into a room to take my medical history. And I've been an as uh, you know an asthmatic weakling, only child, withered human since I was born. So I'm very used to giving my medical history because like, like it makes me feel comfortable. It's like a catechism. It's like you know, are you allergic to any medications? Uh, no, but I'm not supposed to take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs because of something called Semper's Triad, which is a combination of asthma and nasal polyps, and a third thing that I can't remember right now is going to impress you, but I messed it up. <laughs> okay, she's taking all that information, like, do you smoke? I stopped smoking, you know, 18 years ago. Um, do you drink? I say, uh, of course. Uh, and then she asked me a question that I had never heard in my history of giving a medical evaluation intake and she said do you drink every day I'm like I've never been asked that question before and I really had to stop and think about it for a second because the answer is yeah obviously <laughs> you know, I'm, a, I'm a grown up <laughs> this, this is what I've been fighting for But it doesn't sound that great saying it in a hospital environment. You know, my, my wife and I have a martini every day, and as our children are getting older, this is a time for us to kind of reconnect and start to get a preview of, of the emptiness that our lives are going to be very soon. I, and, I, and I really felt like I should just say, no, only you know a couple times a week, like whatever. I'm like, what am I lying for? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 46, I'm a grown-up now. What is she going to do, get mad at me? Like, I should just own who I am. And I said, the answer is yes. And she said, Hooray, me too. <laughs> I'm like, I, I like this hospital a lot. Can I, can I live here? 
so I wasn't going to tell that story, but it seemed because of my neck and everything else, I thought, I, thought I would. But the book, the book Vacation Land is a, is a little bit about those moments in your life when the image that you have of, of who you are, that maybe you've carried over from a younger part of your life, kind of falls away and you really see very clearly who you are now. And I think it's something that happens a number of times when the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves you know, disappear, no matter how hard we're holding on to them. And the, the liberty that comes in just you know, acknowledging uh, who you are and, whether, and, and where you are in your life. And that could be the good things and the less good things, the, 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 uh, the hard luck you've had and the privilege that you've enjoyed. And without getting too serious, it's a book about, of comedy stories also. <laughs> but, but I'm just saying it's incredibly relatable. Um, uh, to and universal to everyone, even people who aren't in Maine. I don't know why I need to make that pitch here, but it's something I <laughs> something that I say, try to say in every interview uh, to make people understand um, this is not regional humor. This is universal, <laughs> universal comedy for everyone, but especially really for you guys. We know, you know what I mean. So um, I will. I'll tell another story. And then we can have a conversation if you have any questions or whatever, and then we'll uh, and then I'll sing a song, um, which probably we don't have the rights to broadcast WVRU, so you're going to have to cut that out, probably unless you want to be sued out of existence by Jonathan Richmond. <laughs> um, and then you know sign some books, and that'll be it. You'll all get home in time. It's going to be fine. So you know. In time for what? I don't know. <laughs> Dead. I mean, what are you, you going to do? Party over at the Blue Hill Hospital ER? <laughs> Probably there's a lot going on over there. So, you know, we, we, moved, we moved to this uh, part-time. To my, my wife is a high school teacher in New York City. Uh, I am marginally self-employed. Our, our children cannot get jobs. So we have the, the whole summer to, to hang around here. And yet our, our kids are getting older. And, and when we moved into this house, uh, our kids discovered their independence in a way that we, that we didn't um, expect. Like they wanted to go do things on their own. They're getting to be that age. Our daughter would, you know, get on her bike and, and ride down Maskeg Road to the um, to the uh, cemetery there, and um, uh, I don't know what she was doing there. <laughs> she was either putting a, you know, a little stone on the on the grave of Evie White, you know, on the, on the tombstone there, because she loves Evie White, or maybe she would just dance on his grave because she knows she's next. <laughs> um, and my wife and I were kind of just left to our own devices for the first time, and in the in the absence of not knowing what to do with one another. We kind of fulfilled our our Caucasian class destiny in a way we did not expect, and it, which is sort of embarrassing to admit, even now. And that is to say, okay, we bought a boat. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Two white middle-aged people bought a boat. Did you ever hear that story before? It wasn't a huge. It wasn't a yacht or anything. It's just a. It's just a, a 14 foot, 13, 14. I don't even know the length. But it's a it's a rowboat, and and we bought it. Um, you know, in our defense, we bought it by accident. Um, you know how that is. I'm sure. I'm sure, there are quite a few of you here who have bought boats by accident. So, at the risk of boring you with my story, 
what happened was, I think we first saw it at, actually outside the Blue Hill Co-op, there was a poster for an auction uh, on Deer Isle to, uh, to raise money for a, a church. Um, that's a thing that happens. And the, there are a number of things listed, but the big item that was being auctioned off, uh, and I had a big picture of it, was this um, Jim Steele peapod. Now, this is the part of the story uh, where if I'm telling the story outside of uh, the peninsula of Blue Hill, I will say to people, you don't know what a Jim Steele peapod is because you are normal people. <laughs> but I know a lot of you do know what it is, and I know exactly how abnormal you are. But in case there's anyone listening here on the radio uh, who does not know what a, what a Jim Steele peapod is, a peapod, of course, is a, is a very, very uh, traditional uh, piece of main nautical architecture. It's a boat that is pointed on each side. It looks like a peapod. It's wide in the middle, notoriously very, very stable because it was used for lobstering before there were motors. A lobster man, uh, typically, uh, in, that, in that day, uh, could go out and uh, uh, row this uh, peapod, usually while standing, uh, through the very uh, uh, shallow parts of, of the coves and, um, and, and could pull up uh, his traps, uh, just put his, his uh, foot right on the gunnel and lean over. They're so stable, he could put his foot on the gunnel. That's a word I learned, gunnel. <laughs> Pull his crap up in, and then uh, go home and make a living on his own and never have to see or speak to another human on Earth, which I think is pretty much the dream of everyone in Maine. <laughs> and Jim, Jim or Jimmy Steele, resident of Brooklyn, Maine, he's, he's no longer alive, um, was a boat maker and a builder of many different houses and things, and, this, and peapods in particular. And was well known for building these peapods. And you know, I talk about how I steal stories. Is uh, Brian Larkin here? No, Brian blew it off. All right, good. <laughs> I'm really glad, you know, because he can't tell his own story the way I can tell it. <laughs> Brian Larkin, who is a, a, a boat builder in Brooklyn, who I've, I've come to know was telling me, everyone in town knew Jim Steele, and he's like, oh, Jimmy Steele is a really interesting guy. And he's like, you know, one time I was in my workshop and I had run out of white oak, which is, I'm presuming, a kind of wood. I don't know. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a boat builder or whatever. I'm going to warn you, there's some salty language in this. I don't like to swear in a library, but you need to know that it's going to happen. Um, and, he's, and so he went up to Jim Steele's workshop and he said, hey, Jim, I just ran out of white oak. Uh, can I buy some off of you? And his neighbor, Jim Steele, turned and said, F you. <laughs> this isn't a wood shop. Get the f out of here. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Brian, sort of expecting this treatment, he was probably 50-50 chances what he's going to hear. He's like, no problem, I understand. I went back to his workshop and I can't remember what it was later that day or the next day or whatever. He hears a truck outside and he opens up the door and he sees Jim Steele dumping a huge pile of white oak directly into his driveway off his truck. And he says, there's your goddamn wood. <laughs> and Brian's like, I thought that you didn't want to. He's like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. <laughs> and Brian said, well, okay, well, what do I owe you? Nothing! <laughs> 
very special kind of name. <laughs> Generosity. <laughs> Vacation Land, obviously the title of the book is taken from uh, one of the state's many nicknames and mottos, but I feel like what should, really should be on the license plate is Maine, putting the spite and hospitality. <laughs> So, I obviously really wanted to see this incredible piece of traditional Maine, you know, artisanship that had been put together by the angriest hands on earth. So I said, you know, let's go out and, and go to the auction and just take a look at this boat. And we had a friend, Heidi, who was like, if you go, this boat's going to go for a lot of money because everyone's into these peapods, these Jim Steel peapods. It's like... Uh, you can bid for me like $2,000, but that's, it's going to go for more than that. And sure enough, we see the boat, and the first thing I see is that the minimum bid, minimum acceptable bid is going to be $3,500. So Heidi's out of luck. And I also see that this boat is this beautiful thing. And it's an incredible, you know, insane puzzle that Jim Steele imagined in his mind and then put together. Um, both beautiful and deeply functional. Um, and I think we both really bonded, my wife and I really bonded with the boat. And I said, look, you know, this boat's going to sell for a lot of money. And, uh, you know, but I think that it would be nice if you um, bid on, you know, if you made the opening bid in the auction. Because that way, you know, we'll watch and we'll get the auction going. And even though there's no way we're going to end up with this boat, <laughs> we will have some small hand in pushing it forward uh, on whatever new, you know, journey it's going to take. And my wife looked at me and said, it's very poetic and that is why you are the greatest living American storyteller. <laughs> She did not say that. She said, <laughs> said no, that's dumb. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm like, well, let's just see what happens. So we went around, and there were a lot of people at this auction, and they were all there for this Jimmy Steele peapod. There was no question about it, because there was nothing else really to bid on. We're walking around, and everything for sale was like some broken... Uh, ski poles, uh, some half sets of Candyland. I don't. I swear, I swear that someone was auctioning off a Folgers coffee can full of nickels. I saw this. I'm not sure what what they were hoping to get out of this. And so the auction begins, and they immediately move through all of this junk, and it goes for you know nothing. And then the auctioneer, who for all I know is here today, and uh, if you are. Make yourself known later. Uh, <laughs> so now we come to the item that everyone is here for, Jimmy Steele Peapod. And everyone takes this huge step forward. And it's this huge, I mean, I would say 50 or 60 people are there. And he said, now, you know, Jimmy Steele made X number of peapods uh, during his life. Uh, the first one he built was in 19 blah, blah, blah. I, the real numbers are in the book, if you really want to know. <laughs> I just can't remember them right now. I don't want to be yelled at if I get it wrong, because someone out there does know. <laughs> so the first one he built in the late 1960s, um, can anyone guess uh, uh, how much that Peapod sold for when Jimmy Steele built his first Peapod? And I don't know what came over me, but I had a profound sense of knowing. 
the answer. And so I said, $100, out loud. And he was so mad at me. <laughs> he turned and glared at me and he says, that's right. <laughs> so angry that I would stolen his line. And he said, this peapod that's for auction is number 107 or whatever. Uh, the last peapod to come up for auction in 2008, can anyone guess how much that one sold for? Anyone guess? Any guesses from the expert? <laughs> I'm like, no. He said $10,000. And did I know that? Of course I knew it. Somehow I knew it was $10,000, but I kept my mouth shut. So I'm like, there's no way. I'm, I'm lucky that we're not going to buy a boat today because I don't want to spend that money. So he begins the auction and he starts the opening bid is $3,500. Who will give me $3,500? Who will give me $3,500 for the Jimmy Steel Peapot? Who will give me $3,500? Who will give me $3,500? And I'm looking at my wife going, and I'm like, come on, I'm just going to be fine. There's $3,500 there. Who will give me $3,600? Who will give me $3,600? Who will give me $3,600? $3,600. Jimmy Steel Peapot, $3,600. Incredible bargain. $3,600. Who will give me $3,600? Who will give me $3,600? Who will give me $3,600? No one would give him 36. <laughs> the moment my wife did, everyone in the room took a big step back and looked down at the floor. He finally got one guy to bid $3,600. He's like, and he knew him by name. He's like, come on, Tom, give me $3,600. He's like, uh, all right, fine, 36. Who give me 36? Who give me 37? Who give me 37? Who give me 37? Who give me 37? The guy's like, Tom, give me 37. It's like, I just gave you 36 and I already have a little pot. <laughs> Who give me 37? Who give me 37? Who give me 37? Who give me 37? And now my wife is into it because Tom did. And she's like, 37! <laughs> now we have 37. Who give me 38? Who give me 38? Who give me 38? Who give me 38? No one. No one on earth would give him $3,800. And finally, after a period of about five years, it felt like, he said, going once, going twice, sold to you. And he pointed to my wife. And we owned this boat for $3,700. And all of a sudden, everyone was down here, looked up, smiled, and then stepped directly over to my wife. And they all said the same thing. That's amazing. A Jimmy Steel Peapot for $3,700. What a bargain. Good for you. $3,700 for a Jimmy Steel Peapot. Incredible bargain. Good for you. This went on for weeks. <laughs> Word got around quickly. We would take the Peapot out for a road. Someone would call from the dock. $3,700 Jimmy Steele Peapod. Good for you. Around town. Good for you. What a bargain. I was in the post office, and if you've ever been to the post office in Brooklyn, Maine, you know that it's very, very small. There's not a lot of room for two people in there, never mind two people and one hidden person. But I'll tell you a story that is true. A man, I knew who he was, but I'd never met him in town is in there and he goes are you the husband of the woman who bought the Jimmy Steele Peapod and I said yes and he said wow what'd you pay for it again and I said what are you doing I think you know what I paid for it $3,700 $3,700 
What an incredible bargain. Good for you. John, suddenly he knew my name. (laughs) There's someone I want you to meet. And in that moment, I am swearing to you, he produced out of thin air an older woman who was not there, but suddenly was. A very handsome, prim, older woman. And he said, I want you to meet this person. Uh, Pam, this is John. He bought the Jimmy Steele peapod for $3,700. John, this is Pam Steele, Jimmy's widow. (laughs) Hello, (laughs) ma'am. She said, did you buy Jimmy's peapod? I'm like, yeah, because I heard about that. (laughs) She looked through my soul. Said, I want I wanted to meet the person who bought Jimmy's boat for thirty seven hundred dollars. There was a long pause, and then she said, Good for you. <laughs> Turned around without another word and walked out. That is a true story. And I'm like, what is happening in this town? Because it is getting pretty Shirley Jackson's the lottery up in here. Is this something that happens? Every year, do we not really buy the peapod? Is this a ritual of some kind? Like, every year you select one couple from away to sell the peapod to? You trick them into coming to this auction? You let them make a bid, then you don't bid on it? Then they take it home and you flatter them and fatten them up with flattery. And you make them start to feel comfortable until it gets towards the end of the summer, and that's when you chloroform them in their sleep. Bring them over to the Blue Hill Fair before it opens. Tie them to a stake in the middle of the fairground. They wake up, they're tied to a stake. All the town is gathered around. A young boy says to his mother, Mama, where's the wood? And she says, Shh. And then an old man drives up with a truck full of white oak, dumps it, dumps it at the foot of our feet, and goes, There's your goddamn wood sets it on fire, burns us alive. You take the peapod back to sell it to another couple next year. That's how you keep your kids from drowning. Is that what's happening? That didn't end up happening. Maine is not a death cult. Well, it's a slow one, maybe. Comes in like the tide, and before you know it, the ground beneath your feet is gone. Uh, uh, that is the story from the book. It's called uh, the story is called "You Are Normal People," um, and now you know what that's all about. Are there any uh, questions, or thoughts, or concerns, vendettas, corrections, anything you'd like to talk? If you haven't read the book, I'm happy to answer any. Any other questions you have about my career or anyone else's um, that you think I might know or not? But it's really important that someone ask. Thank you. There we go. You're listening to actor, humorist, and author John Hodgman speaking on May 29th in Blue Hill about his most recent book, Vacation Land, True Stories from Painful Beaches, which was just released in paperback. What is your name? Amy? And uh, where are you calling from, Amy? <laughs> you're in Brooksville. Very nice. Oh, your husband works at the boat yard. This is your husband's uncle? Sure. It's a relation. Mm-hmm. 
Is, is this person, is he still making peapods in that shop? Oh. Well, this has been a fun story. For those of you listening on the radio, this gentleman is also dead. Oh, you're, oh, so, excuse me. So you were saying that your husband's great uncle or something who took over the Jimmy Steele Peapod business was a, was a really nice person and didn't have the Jimmy Steele attitude. And that's why he died. <laughs> Couldn't cut it. Couldn't cut it. What was, what was his name who, who built the new Jimmy Steeles? Pete Chase? And so there's some Pete Chase Peapods out there? Hmm. Maybe I'll buy a couple. <laughs> oh, Pete Chase was from away, so he couldn't afford to swear at his neighbors <laughs> and then be nice to them after the fact once he established his boundaries. Awesome. Oh, yeah. How much have I been on the Peapod? Oh, I haven't seen it since we bought it. <laughs> Why? I, I buried it. Was that wrong? <laughs> I filled it with cement and buried it. So no, one... no, I we're we're on it all the time. Um, yeah, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing thing. I mean, it, it, it moved, like I've been in other boats of that size and nothing moves quite that way. And um, I love it and I stand in it and paddle it around. Um, you know, my, but it's, it really belongs to my wife. <laughs> Other questions or gossip? You know what I'll do is I'll come to you so that you can, well, then I can't, I'm trying to think of you here, Matt, because the radio can't hear the question. Repeat the question. All right. I'll repeat the question. What is your name? My Rebecca. Okay. So for those of you who can't hear, Rebecca really loves listening to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. <laughs> Available at MaximumFun.org. Not really a question, but thank you. So the question is, how did I come up with the character of Judge John Hodgman? And, um, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with the podcast, um, it would be appropriate for you to leave. It is a very entertaining podcast. In, in which uh, uh, real people call in and air various uh, small household disputes, such as you know the correct method to washing dishes, or um, that's one another one. Whether or not to get an air conditioner, whether to wear Crocs, to wear Crocs in public. Was that you? <laughs> oh. Oh yeah, right. Whether uh, Hannah, yeah, that's right. I forgot. That's the first time I met Hannah. Uh, was when she was brought to court by her sister Afton because she refused to get a, a, a cell phone that would text uh, and wanted to hold on to her old flip phone. And uh, people were worried about her, and their long periods would go when they thought she was dead because they couldn't <laughs> reach her. So I ordered her to modernize. Do you have that phone, the new phone, with you? Oh, that's what it was. Not to text, right? But. It's, your phone didn't work at your house. <laughs> and I ordered you to get a phone that would work at your house. <laughs> so it's, a it's like Judge Judy, except, you know, it's me. And uh, it, it, we have a fun conversation and I adjudicate the cases. But uh, it's not a character. I mean, that is just me. And the, the, 
it was designed that way because I, when I started that podcast um, eight years ago, right, 2010, I had um, emerged very implausibly onto TV uh, on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart where I was playing this really absurd resident expert, insane character, know-it-all character who then became a, the deranged millionaire. And I was writing books of humor in the vein. In fact, the, the, the two things happened simultaneously. These books of absurd invented facts, alternative facts. I was doing it before it was cool. <laughs> And I was very, I mean, it was always me, but it was always very much in character. And, and by, by, you know, 2010, 2011, I started feeling like I would like to not just be that character. I mean, I, w I would like to have people know who I am. So Judge John Oz was really meant to showcase me and all my different but authentic weirdness as opposed to the invented weirdness that was those characters. So, And then this book, you know, is definitely all true, all all real to the best of my <laughs> recollection. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes. Uh, yeah, so uh, what is your name? Kit. Hi, Kit. The question was, is the fresh banana man still at the southbound Kennebunk service plaza on I-95? <laughs> I'm sure you all had the same question. <laughs> I am in I am in touch I'm in touch with him, but I would ask you not to broadcast on the radio that I am blanking on his name right now. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you, Jonathan Niederer. That's right, Jonathan Niederer, my good friend. <laughs> he really is a lovely guy. But this, we had been we had spent the whole summer here, and we were driving back. In fact, I was driving directly back to Western Massachusetts, where I was going to record a podcast with my friend Monty Belmonte. And so we kind of were in a rush, and we stopped at the Kennebunk Service Plaza on I-95 southbound. And uh, I was walking to the restroom, and I know there was this sort of like exiled corner of healthy food that they had there, <laughs> away from the rest of the food court, including a bowl of bananas. And this young man was just uh, attempting passes by by going, fresh bananas here, which are... <laughs> fresh bananas <laughs> and he had this whole patter and it, it was with accompanying hand motions so he would do these little this, these little filigrees with his hands like hmm so fresh and tasty would anyone like a fresh banana bananas here get your fresh bananas and I'm going into the bathroom like that kid is putting the work in for sure I don't know whether this is a sincere effort to move bananas today, or whether it's some kind of art project. <laughs> but, but, but I'm going to buy some bananas from this guy. And I go out, and I collect my daughter as she comes out of the women's bathroom. I said, I don't care whether you want a banana or not. We're getting two bananas. And I go up, and he goes, I'll, I'll have two bananas. And he goes, certainly, sir. Any two particular bananas? <laughs> or just two from the top? <laughs> I, said, I, will, I will not second guess your expertise. Whichever ones you think are right. And so he sold me these bananas. I could not stop thinking about them. 
and we drove immediately to the radio station in Western Mass, and I, um, I just talked about him on the podcast. I was so happy, and we got in touch, and I came back and visited him again. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of podcast listeners would go and buy bananas from him, <laughs> but he doesn't work there anymore. In fact, that whole stand is gone. He had moved on. Uh, he'd move on. He was working at Costco for a while, selling dish TVs. Uh, you know, you know what I mean, direct TV. Um, and and then they moved, and they had a baby. And he's, I think he's getting a degree in something. I can't remember, but it's been a little while since we've been in touch. He's a lovely guy. It'd be weird if he was still It would be weird if he were still selling bananas. I'm a dad, and I could make a really terrible joke right now, like a really, really bad, bad joke that I'm not going to make. I'm sure it's already hit a lot of your dudes' minds, so we'll leave that alone. It's not a, it's just a dumb wordplay joke, and I'm not going to make it. It's a strength. <coughs> yes. What is your name? I'm Stacy. Hi, Stacy. How are you? I'm good. Good. So, for those of you who could not hear, Stacy. Uh, uh, has, has read my book and uh, purchased it, which is an option for you. Uh, I will say, yeah, I will say that um, under a special arrangement with the publisher, uh, if you buy my book, it frees you from the obligation to read it. You're off the hook. You don't have to read it. That's just a little gift for you. It's totally optional at that point, but otherwise you have to read it. Uh, but no, there is a section in it about Perry's Nuthouse in Belfast, which is a place that, you know, my my wife uh, grew up um, coming here every summer uh, to Newbury Neck, uh, where her grandmother lived um, until she was no longer alive, and then uh, and loved this place more than any other place or person on earth. And Perry's would be the place that she would always stop, and then I would go there with her and try to figure out. Why? <laughs> There's a lo- there are a lot of unanswered questions <laughs> regarding what people want in this world and why it should be fudge ever. <laughs> because we fudge is disgusting. Let's we'll read the book and you'll and you'll agree with me. Um, and I wouldn't say that it's an entire an entirely unflattering. Portrait of Perry's Nuthouse. However, if I owned Perry's Nuthouse and I read it, I would be like, why did you do that to me? And <laughs> I have not gone back in um, since. Well, and the I, improv took it a little further. Even. Yeah, right. No, no. I, I make up some things that aren't. Well, anyway. Uh, if you want to know, you can read. Uh, but I have not been in. I've not been back in since, mostly because I feel like I've seen everything there now. I'm not sure that there's there's any new stuff for me to check out. And and it is for sale, just like everything is for sale. I'm not going to buy Perry's nuts. I don't, I don't know what scam you're trying to pull on me, but uh, I've seen. I've, I've, I've seen past performance. It is not promising. It is not what I want to undertake. Well, ha- that would get in the way of my dream job, which is making breakfast sandwiches at the Brooklyn General Store. Which I <laughs> Why would I be in Belfast selling a candy that looks like human feces when I could be <laughs> making breakfast sandwiches at the Brooklyn General Store? So... I'll be there a couple of Sundays this summer. Uh, check my Instagram for that. 
Sir. Do you have a good Newbury neck story? Do I have a good Newbury neck story? Not really. <laughs> Is that where you live? Oh, well, it's very nice. Um, I mean, it's all, all the stories there are, are pleasant. Visiting, you know, I've, I've known my wife for a long, long time. I mean, we went to high school together. We started dating right after high school. And, you know, so I've been, you know, been, I was there over many years, and it's a beautiful place. Not very funny no, it's not very funny, but I'll tell you, uh, if you want some good Newbury Next Stories, you probably already know about this book called The Oatmeal Stories, right? Which is, a, yeah, I mean, that's, I cannot remember the name of the author. Do you? Um, oh, you started with so confident. Bob? Bobby Stevens. Bobby Stevens. Robert Stevens. Robert Stevens, right. And uh, it's a, a, a memoir of growing up in extreme poverty on Newbury Neck in the early part of the 20th century and it's incredible and like that's a you, know, you can get it at the Surrey store I'll tell you the Surrey store no offense Brooklyn General Store but their pizza is better and it's, we got some work to do <laughs> got some work to do there uh, anything else? yes? Hi, Brianna. I've also purchased and read your book. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Brianna has also purchased <laughs> and read my book, Vacation Land, out of paperback today. <laughs> Great question so far. <laughs> right, so the first half of the book, uh, she's talking about my other vacation home. That's the central dilemma of my book, is that I have two vacation homes. <laughs> enjoying my relatable comedy. Uh, my mom passed away uh, when I was 29 and um, uh, left me and my uh, wife uh, home in the hills of western Massachusetts, which had been a place that we had spent a lot of time in as a family when my mom was alive. Uh, uh, and that became our, our place to go away to when we were in our you know, early 30s and um, had no business uh, being in a, you know, we couldn't afford uh, a home and we didn't know how one worked. I did, I, <laughs> I did not know what a septic system was and I did not know what the sound of a septic pump failing was. <laughs> I thought it was a bird in the woods <laughs> going like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> 24 hours a day. Uh, and we, we, you know, uh, we spent a lot of time there. Um, but then, uh, you know, we started spending more and more time here in my wife's part of the world. And then, you know, sort of the, the house that we knew we had to buy was there and we bought it. And now my dad is, you know, who's still alive, who, uh, didn't want anything to do with that Western Massachusetts house because it was just too painful. You know, it's, time has passed, and now he's going there with his new wife. And I think, uh, you know, like uh, we're going to sell it, but I think we're going to Airbnb it. So if you're a weird stalker and into that kind of thing, <laughs> you can you can live you can live the first half of Vacation Land <laughs> from the inside. And then generally speaking, the door to my house in Brooklyn is unlocked, so see you tonight. <laughs> Any other questions before I sing this song? Yes. My name's Karen. 
Karen. Yeah. If we rent the Airbnb, will there be copies of all your books there to read for free? If you rent the Airbnb, will there be copies of all my books there to read for free? Yes. You're going to have to go into the basement. There are, in, there are many, many boxes of them. You're welcome to them. Have I gone to the dump and taken the trash? Because that's the story that opens the book, my terror of going to the dump. Uh, because I, I learned very early on that we weren't technically allowed to dump our garbage in that particular dump. And I didn't, and I didn't want to be yelled at by the dumpman or go to dump jail. Um, uh, I, I now... I feel pretty good about going to the dump there now. Oh no, I found out that we can go dump in Greenfield, Massachusetts, and that's even more convenient. But I'll tell you, when I got that Blue Hill Surrey transfer station sticker, I felt like <laughs> bulletproof. Like <laughs> nothing bad can ever happen to me. I can take my garbage here, and no one is going to yell at me. But oh, we had we had to because of the timing. I had to f fly here. And so I have a rental car, and I don't know what I'm going to do with my garbage. <laughs> What's the deal with the dumps? No? No? You sure? <laughs> Seems to me like, okay. Let's just say we didn't have this conversation. You don't even know what I was asking about. Yeah. I'll take you all credit. Yeah. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. All right? You want to hear a song? Sure. This is a ukulele. You'll be able to hear everything fine. I have to tune it, though. Uh, sorry. New phone. Yeah, where's my tuner? Well, I got some texts. Hmm. Josie Long had a baby, everybody. A daughter. All right, what am I doing? Oh, yeah, tuning this and telling you a story. So, yeah, I mean, the answer is that I don't really get to go to Massachusetts, my home commonwealth. That's, uh, you know what? Pretty good. Oh, a little flat. You know this song, My Dog Asleep? Yeah, that's good enough for a library. So, I don't really get to spend as much time in Massachusetts as I uh, used to. It is where I am from. Um, and uh, I still love it. There's a song a few years ago, the now mayor of Boston, uh, then legislator Marty Walsh, uh, introduced a bill to have this song named the official rock song of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And it was a very good idea because it's a really good rock song, and it, it says I love Massachusetts right in it. Uh, and everything was going very smoothly, um, but then something happened. I don't know how familiar you are with Massachusetts and the people who live there, but so basically what happened was some people in Massachusetts learned that some other people in Massachusetts wanted something, and that couldn't be allowed to stand without some challenge. And they learned that someone wanted this song to be the official rock song, some other legislators got together and said, no, we want a different song to be the official rock song. 
Massachusetts, and we want that song to be Dream On by Aerosmith. Now, that's definitely a song, but that's not a rock song. That's a power ballad. This is a rock song. Road runner, road runner, going faster miles an hour. Gonna drive to the stop and shop. That's like our Hannaford's. It's pandering. It's pandering. That's what I'm doing. With my radio on. I'm in love with Massachusetts. And the neon when it's cold outside. And the highway when it's late at night. I got my radio on. I'm the road runner. I'm in love with modern moonlight Route 128 when it's dark outside I'm in love with Massachusetts I'm in love with my radio on Helps me to not feel so lonely late at night Helps me to not feel so lonely late at night I don't feel so bad now I'm in the car I don't feel so bad I got my radio on Welcome to the spirit of 1956, patient in the bushes next to 57. The highway's your girlfriend as you go by quick, suburban speeds, suburban trees, and it smells like heaven. I said roadrunner once, roadrunner twice. I'm in love with rock and roll, obviously. And I'll be out all night. That's right. Road runner, road runner, going faster miles an hour. I'm gonna, I'm gonna drive right to the stopping shop. I'm gonna drive with my radio on. And me in love with modern moonlight. Me in love with modern rock and roll. Modern girls and modern rock and roll. I'm gonna, 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 I'm Radio on! Radio! Alright, so that's your part. Some of you got it. Right? Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, it's really easy. It's just radio on, radio on, radio on, radio on. The two words, radio and on, right? You, and, and I know, look, this is Maine. You're not the most emotive people. Singing along may not be what comes natural, but you will feel better if you do it. You don't even have to sing it, just shout it, radio on. I'll get it going, and then you keep doing it while I sing a different thing, and then it'll all be over. Radio on! No, no, don't sing it. Not call and response. I apologize. <laughs> sing it. Sing it when I'm singing it. Okay. <laughs> Two, three. Radio on. Radio on. Good. Radio on. Good, but louder. Radio on. Good. Now better. Radio on. I got the AM. 
I got the car, I got the AM now. I got the, I got the car from Massachusetts now. I got, the, I got the power of Massachusetts. I got the power of the Pioneer Valley. Parts of Southern Vermont too. I got the power of the Mohawk Trail, also known as Route 2. Thank you very much for your kind attention, everybody. I'll be around to visit with you back there. I hope you enjoy the book. Thanks for not murdering me. Good night. You've been listening to a WERU Main Current special. That was actor, humorist, and author John Hodgman speaking on May 29th at the Blue Hill Library about his most recent book, Vacation Land, True Stories from Painful Beaches, which was just released in paperback. The talk was recorded by Matt Murphy. I'm Amy Brown. Thank you for listening. Thank you.